This episode is brought to you by Progressive, where customers who save by switching their home and car save nearly $800 on average. Quote at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $793 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2021 and May 2022. Potential savings will vary. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Redeemers is supported in part by Jackbox Games. Get five hilarious party games in the Jackbox Party Pack 5. It's now available on Xbox One, PS4, Nintendo Switch, Steam, and more. Play games like You Don't Know Jack Full Stream, Split the Room, Madverse City, Patently Stupid, and Zeeple Dome with friends this weekend. Visit jackboxgames.com for more info. I don't know how to tell this story. It's not that I don't know how to tell a story. I could tell you a story. I have a six-year-old niece whom I visit regularly, whom I will gather in my arms and take upstairs while my sister is loading up the dishwasher, and she will ask Uncle Nick for a story. Uncle Nick will oblige her. Once upon a time, you know, we brainwash the kids with that. We make their lives harder with that. Fairy tales? Fairy tales, yes. Abel, thank you. Everyone, this is Abel. Hi. Abel's going to shut up now. Okay. Fairy tales, but not the way you think. Although, yes, that too with the princes and the good defeats evil and happily ever after. That too, but that's not what I mean. I mean once upon a time. I mean the opening. My niece, she demands that because she's been told that this is how it begins. If it does not begin this way, then it was not a fucking fairy tale, which I learned the hard way one night. I learned because I start a story one night with there once was and... I don't remember which story I told. Maybe the one about the tailor and the flies and the giant. She listens, my niece, the whole way through, eyes on me the whole time, not falling asleep like usual, just pop, staring at me. So I get to the end, at which point I say, the end, and she's still staring at me. I say, no, go to sleep, honey, and instead she folds her arms. Her mouth gets tense. That stare of hers hits a temperature like the outermost moon of Saturn, and she says, you didn't start it right. She will not be mollified, my niece. My apology means nothing to her. She does not say anything further, but I understand whatever language she's emitting through those arctic eyes of hers. I understand that I'm to start the story over, and that when I start it over, I am to start it over in the correct manner. 
Once upon a time, because that is how her mother starts stories. That is how her father, her father, who went off to a sales convention in Anaheim and then sent back his wedding ring two-day air, that is how he would start stories. And in this moment, I have somehow failed to clear even the lowest bar of human decency that he could clear every single night. My niece, then, has decreed, not in words, that Uncle Nick is to start the story over. I hesitate, because at first I think I have to tell her a different story than the one I just told her, making sure this time to begin the story correctly, but then I realize that she stopped listening immediately after I botched the opening, and, and, and this is something. You may notice, my niece didn't interrupt me as soon as I'd made the error. No, she didn't say, Uncle Nick, that's not how the story starts, it starts once upon a time. She waited. She held her offense, I guess you'd call it, bottled up inside her for the entirety of my story, and then she let it all out after I was finished, like some steam pipe that the valve hadn't been left open. This is something that she gets from her mother. I know, it's the exact same mannerism. My sister's ex is a fucking lowlife, and if I ever see him again, I'll kick him in the ribs, but seeing that look on my niece's face, I could almost understand. You don't ever tell her I said that. I've never met your sister. You're not missing anything. I tell my niece the exact same story again, beginning with Once Upon a Time, but we both know this isn't real. Whatever magic there is in telling a story to a child at bedtime, that's gone. What we have left that night is a routine, and no matter how much expression I put into the telling, or how attentive she is this go-round, the whole enterprise is dead at the core. She listens and she falls asleep because that's the machinery. She's forgotten the incident, of course, as far as I can tell, but me... It's never quite been the same for me. I'm always so careful with the opening of the story now, and when she goes to sleep smiling, I feel this tiny corkscrew unwind itself out of my spine that I hadn't even realized was there. <laughs> Once upon a time. Can you imagine how much harder it is for a kid to write a, a book report of what I did on my summer vacation essay because of what we do to them with that? Because we hammer into their heads... What's that number? That stat or whatever? How it's seven times harder to unlearn a bad habit than it is to learn it correctly the first time? Is it seven... It's some weird number like that, and I don't have the slightest idea how they came up with it. We do that. When we're not careful, we impart a fool notion into the heads of our kids that a story has to start one way. Had I been there earlier for my niece, I would have mixed it up a little. Let me tell you about this story takes place in There Once Was. It's ten. What's ten? It's barely past eight. It's ten times harder to unlearn a bad habit. I, uh, I looked it up on my phone just now. It's not scientific. It's a quote. Charles Dudley Warner. I don't know who that is. Charles Dudley Warner, an essayist, born 1829, died... I misspoke, Abel. I'm sorry. I meant I don't care who that is. It's not science. Fine. Has nothing to do with my point. I'm not seeing your point. I know how to tell a story is my point. But I don't know how to tell this one. For crying out loud. Once upon a time, there were three friends sitting in a bar. God damn it. What? I went to get the drinks ten minutes ago. I come back and you haven't told them anything. Here's your beer, Abel. What do I owe you? Get the next one. If you're not going to tell this story, Nick, then I'll start. Three friends sitting in a bar is not a story, it's a joke. Three friends walk into a bar is a joke. We're past that. I'm already two Malbecs in and here comes the third. Catch up. I'm going, I'm going to tell the story. I'm trying to formulate... Once upon a time, there was this chicken shit narrator who refused to start telling a story. All right. He had refused to tell the story, not because he didn't know the details... Just give me a second. ...or because he didn't know where Will to begin... ...but because he didn't know how to tell the story without making him and his friends sound like petty, vicious... Mercy. 
I like making you shout my name. I like to pretend it's you begging. Yes, that's why. When I tell you this story, by the end of it, you're going to believe that the three of us are horrible, horrible people. Which we are. You're not helping. You might think you're helping, but you're not. The problem is the first part of the story. The first part of the story is familiar. It's a heartwarming family classic, which means you have certain prejudices. When we try to explain to you why we did what we did, your first instinct is you're going to shake your heads and cluck your tongues and whisper to each other, those bastards, those sons of bitches. I didn't realize we were explaining ourselves. I'm pleading our case. I thought this was a confession. A confession implies guilt. Um, we're guilty. No. No, I won't own that. I have no guilt in this. You're kidding, right? We all, we're, all of us... Responsible. Responsible, I will cop to, but guilt is a complex internal feeling, and I don't know that what I feel right now is what I would describe as guilt. That doesn't make any sense. Sure it does. O.J. Simpson is not guilty of murdering his wife, but he is responsible. That isn't how law works. Christmas cards. Every year at the holiday party, we would get these Christmas cards. What are you doing? Helping you. Tell them about the Christmas cards, Nick. Sure. Christmas cards. You know the kind. The ones like take over the seasonal aisle of the drugstore right after Halloween. Glossy cut-rate Norman Rockwell paintings on the front. Little Aryan kids in flannel footy pajamas spying Santa at the tree. Horse-drawn sleigh ride through a forest that doesn't exist outside of Canadian poetry. And ours said... Happy holidays and best wishes for the new year. Thank you for being part of the Edwin Financial Team. Signed, Charles Edwin, CEO. Except it wouldn't be signed, Charles Edwin, CEO. It would be stamped, Charles Edwin, CEO. And it wouldn't be stamped, Charles Edwin, CEO, by Charles Edwin, CEO. It would be stamped by his personal assistant. Nick. Me. Charles Edwin would never touch the Christmas cards. Charles Edwin never came to the holiday parties. Charles Edwin only allowed holiday parties because a Forbes magazine article told him he ought to. Because, because Charles, Charles Edwin, Edwin hated, hated Christmas. Christmas. Until last year. Last year when Mr. Edwin not only showed up to the holiday party, but showed up positively stupid with the spirit of Christmas. Yeah, huh? Familiar? A story you've heard someplace before? You think you know, don't you? <laughs> You're funny. You're already imagining our boss in all the... Uh, with, the with the cap and the slippers. Nightshirt? Is that what it's called? A nightshirt? I've always heard nightshirt. You're imagining him in his nightshirt getting flown out of his window to Fezziwigs. You are adorable. It wasn't Christmas Eve. Let's get past that nonsense first. It wasn't Christmas Eve. It was early November. If he saw any spirits of past, present, and future, they were byproducts of the anesthetic. It was a... He had a thing with his heart. Triple bypass. That. I know what you're thinking. Do not... Don't even. You want to derive some meaning to him getting his heart repaired? Knock it off. The heart is a muscle. If it was his ACL, you wouldn't even start in that direction. The ACL I is I know it's a ligament. Yes, there are similarities. Yes, he was a prickly financier. Yes, he humbugged his way through every Christmas. I simply offer, by way of disclaimer, fictional characters, living or dead, etc., etc., purely coincidental. I was in a production of that, you know? When I was 11? <clears throat> I've come to bring you home, dear brother. Father is ever so much kinder than he used to be. He sent me in a coach to bring you. Very nice. Wait for it. And you're to be a man. Yay. <laughs> As I'm preparing labels for the envelopes, he comes to me. He's been back in the office for a few days at this point. He walks over to my desk, says, 
Nicholas? He called you Nicholas? Which should have been the first flag, I realize. Nicholas, he says, don't worry about the Christmas cards. I'd like to handle them personally this year. Smiles, pats my shoulder, walks away. I panic. Nick finds me down in accounting. Mercy. Hey. Hey, how bad a year did we have? How bad a year do you want? I'm serious. Could have been better, should have been worse. What's up? Mr. Edwin says he's going to handle the Christmas cards. Unusual, you're thinking? I'm thinking that maybe he doesn't think we're all going to be here by Christmas. Aha. Uh-huh. Do you know anyone in HR? She wouldn't tell me even if she were speaking to me. IT? Yes. Abel. Abel. Ah. Hi, Abel. Nick and I had a question. I'm confused. Is this... Are we having a flashback right now? Is that a problem for you? No, I, I mean, that's cool and all. I Just a little warning next time, you know. Okay. Flashback. Go ahead. Have you been asked to lock out anybody's login? Me? No. Why? You'd tell me if you had been, though. Technically, I'm not supposed to. But you'd still tell me, right? Of course I'd tell you. <laughs> Nobody knows. Boss barely comes out of his office the whole week except to go home. Now, mind you, this is better than previous. Normal weeks, you could expect him to storm out randomly and do spot inspections. Make sure the temps weren't surfing the web on his dime. You remember that one kid? The one from Wisconsin. Is that where he was from? Yeah, one of those towns named after a river mammal. Otter. Beaver. Muskrat Falls or Creek or Stream. Anyhow. Maybe it was Iowa. Walks up behind the poor kid, says... That doesn't look like a spreadsheet, son. I remember. I was updating the machine on the other side of the cube. He was just looking at the news, the kid was. Just the news, you say? Yes, that's how it usually starts. Then it's your fantasy football team, then it's movie trailers, and every once in a while, when you think nobody's around, it's a swimsuit model. And the kid does that nervous giggle, the one that says, I would never do that, and I definitely haven't done that already. Mr. Edwin calls me over, has me disconnect the machine from the web, and you would think that's the end of it. Nope. Tell them what he did. Tell them what he did the very next damn day. He brings Mr. in... Mr. Edwin brings in a typewriter and a ream of the ancient printer paper with the alternating white and sea green lines. With a post-it note on top of it that reads, Starve your distractions. Feed your focus. Tony Robbins. Christ's sake. And the rest of that week, the kid is doing data entry on this machine. Which is, and I'll tell you what's ironic here, it turns out to be a distraction to everybody else on the floor because we are all of us used to a certain brand of work noise, right? Tap, 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 click, tap, 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 click. But this one week, instead, it's tap, 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 click, and it's also ka-chunk, 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 ding, ka-chunk, 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 damn it. I felt so bad for the kid. After Wednesday, I wanted to tell Mr. Edwin, okay, okay, he's learned his lesson. Can I put his computer back now? Did you? No. Would you? Of course not. This job market? Right? Three months he stuck around. I don't know how many years it took off of his life. He was miserable. He didn't want this job. He wanted to be working for a nonprofit somewhere, doing whatever it is you do to take down sweatshops in Sri Lanka. I heard him talking to himself in the shower one morning, reminding himself he had to eat. Mercedes. What? You knew that. I told you that. Uh, not I. You two were... Sure. Repeatedly. I didn't tell you this. He was 22. Yeah, huh? When you were 22, he was in fifth grade. When I was 22, the men I slept with acted like fifth graders. It evens out in the grand scheme of the cosmos. We have wandered so far away from 
Mr. Edwin not coming out of his office. Yes. We get to the day of the holiday party, for which everybody is expecting, as usual, a few strands of tinsel on the wall at the large conference room, a coffee pot, and some cupcakes. That is not what we find there. No. Instead, there's a sign, hand-lettered, this font, this ye olde English-type font. What did it say? There. Uh, got a picture of it on my phone. Esteemed employees of Edwin Financial. Happy holidays. Please abandon this dreary conference room and join me in the back room of Hanley's Pub where we may more properly celebrate. Cordially yours, C. Edwin. We go downstairs to Hanley's. I can barely begin to describe it. Swipe next. Huh. Why'd you keep these? I never delete anything. Don't you run out of room? It's all in the cloud, Nick. There's... Holly hanging from the light fixtures, green and gold glass ornaments. The whole room smells like cinnamon and nutmeg, I think. Also, snowflakes. Dozens of fold-up, cut-out snowflakes made out of Edwin Financial letterhead. Each one different, except for the logo. It's like... I don't know. It's like you gave a thousand kindergartners a thousand pairs of safety scissors, and they created the Nutcracker. Yes? The thing of it is... Charles Edwin doesn't have kids. He and kindergartners would not travel in the same circles unless he used to live in their closets and vanish when you turned the lights on. That meant he did all of this himself, in his office, the whole time, producing the perfect holiday event for a holiday he used to have no use for. There's a multi-tiered cheese platter, for the love of Christ. You're forgetting the best part. I'm not forgetting it. I'm getting to it. He welcomes everybody to the party. Glad you could be here. Happy hour starts shortly. Relax and have a good time. Then he leaves. He leaves. He's smart, Mr. Edwin is. Of course, he's smart. He'd have to be. He's aware that this is out of character. He knows we're confused. We're not just confused. We're paranoid. Paranoid people do not relax and have a good time. So he leaves to make our evening more enjoyable. Our most gracious of hosts, Mr. Charles Edwin, walking through the crowd, distributing handshakes and smiles. Grand finale. Merry Christmas to all. And to all, a good night. Everything else is epilogue, right? He was a good man to the end of his days. Tiny Tim doesn't die. Except there's this envelope. I watch him. Nick, from across the room. He has an envelope in his hand. He opens the envelope. He looks at the card. And then he sits down. Stunned. Silent. I walk over to him. Hey. Hey. What you got there? He slipped it into my pocket on the way out. Who did? Mr. Edwin did? Did you get yours? They're on that table. Abel, do you mind? Sure. On it. But what's it say? It's it. You'll see. I need a drink. You want anything? What are you getting? Robert Mitchum. No, thanks. I'm fine with wine. I forget. Did he get me a beer when he... I have no idea how you'd expect me to remember that. That's fair. You should tell them about the Robert Mitchum. Right. Uh, There's no such drink as a Robert Mitchum. This is something you should know about him, about Nick. It's not an actual cocktail. It's a bullshit head game he plays with bartenders. I'd like a Robert Mitchum, he'll say. What's in a Robert Mitchum, they'll ask. What do you think's in it? Then he lays his arms on the bar, lays his jaw on his arms, and waits. Until they bring him something. Whatever it is they bring him, he'll take a sip of it, look back at the bartender, and tell them it's perfect. 
When you ask Nick, he tells you that it's a psychology experiment. Oh, I I mean sociology. Well, it's more like anthropology. I'm looking to see if a pattern emerges. I tend to get scotch when I ask for a Mitchum. Burt Lancaster's usually gin. You'd be surprised how often I ask for a Lana Turner get some sort of vodka cranberry. He says you can tell a lot about the bartender by how they react. Are they the kind of person who checks the Boston guide? Do they ask one of the regulars? Do they get flustered? Do they set right to mixing? Do they set it on the bar and tell me how much it costs up front, or do they wait until I've tried it first? Do they even know who I'm talking about, or are they just working a gut feeling from the consonant sounds? Although, side note, everybody knows who Robert Mitchum is. Jaws. No. Anyway, we deliver the bomb. No, that's Robert Shaw. Robert Shaw is the sting. No, I mean, yes. I mean, yes, that's also Robert Shaw. Robert Mitchum is Cape Fear. That's Robert De Niro. No, I mean, yes, that's the remake. That's Robert De Niro. The original is Robert Mitchum. Also, Night of the Hunter. I haven't seen any of these. Now you have homework. What was I saying? Right. An envelope. A Christmas card. A Robert Mitchum. I've been watching Nick with this ritual since college. Yes, you can tell a lot about the bartender by what they make, but you can also tell a lot about Nick by who he orders. He orders a Henry Fonda when he's angry and wants to calm down. He orders a Robert Mitchum when he wants to stay that way. Holy shit. The card? The card, yeah. Holy shit, that's... Yep. That's beautiful. That's the best apology I've ever read. Now, you might hear Abel say that and find yourself skeptical, but I can assure you it is a remarkably well-crafted apology. It strikes a tone that is contrite without asking for pity. It threads the needle between owning up to one's errors and expecting to be celebrated for doing so. Charles Edwin, or somebody paid very well by Charles Edwin, has done careful research on the nuance and psychological impact of the properly written apology and then placed words one after the other with such delicate precision that it impresses in a manner not unlike watching somebody raise the sails of a ship within a glass box. So when Abel says... That's the best apology I've ever read. It is not by any means an exaggeration. I saw through it instantly. That's the best apology I've ever read. It's no civil rights act, but I'll admit... Check your envelopes. Is that a bonus check? That's not a bonus check. That's a game show prize. That son of a bitch. What? Will you look at this? We take a fucking look at this? That rotten little shit, that miserable prick son of a bitch, that ancient goddamn mother... I go on like this for a bit. We let him for a bit. When he's done, I turn to him and I say to him, Nick, Nick, yours is not a proper response to this amount of money. Nick replies... You're telling me you don't see what this is. I say, no, Nick, what is it? It's a ploy. He says... A ploy, I ask. A ploy. He repeats, as if it will make more sense, as if he's a tourist in Beijing, China. He's doing this so that we forgive him. For... What do you mean for? For everything. For his old school time as money sharks among tuna business philosophy. For kid from Wisconsin. For I need you to stay late until it looks right. For I told you to leave the Karpatsky file on my desk. No, you didn't. You told me to file it the fuck away. Well, next time, Nick, do a better job of anticipating my actual needs. Hmm? So? So? Yes, so? So what? Yes, granted, he's been a demanding boss. Demanding. With occasional bursts of... of Tyrant? Fine, if you need that. The point is, this is what he looks like making amends. He's asking me for my forgiveness? Then what the hell? I can forgive him. Forgive him? We're supposed to forgive him Why? Why? You know who Charles Edwin is? He's one of those 1% fuckers who owns half the money in the whole world. 
He's the guy who can lose in 10 minutes without even thinking about it what it costs to rent your apartment for a year. He's the guy who got decades of tax breaks, and he's the guy who sucker punched the economy, and his job is going to stay as secure as Fort Knox. He has your senator on speed dial. You think he needs your forgiveness? No, he wants your forgiveness. Like he wants a new chateau in the south of France, and you're going to give it to him his forgiveness? You're going to give it to him why? Flat screen plasma, concert tickets, robot, butler? You'll forgive him because he's made you feel like king for a minute. He ranted. I'm having trouble with tense. It's all right, sugar. We have linear time for a reason, is all I'm saying. Drink your beer. You know what this is? He continues. Tell us what it is, I prod. It's Rosemary Brown. He says, like I'm supposed to know. Who, I ask? So I tell them. Rosemary Brown was this girl is this girl who I had this mad crush on sophomore year of high school. Rosemary Brown, as these stories always go, was dating this other guy, this real champ. He used to make her feel like something he found growing in the refrigerator. But he took her to homecoming and he bought her flowers on sweetest day, so it didn't really matter that he'd call her a dummy when she asked him to explain the infield fly rule. And we're all watching this. We all know. We've all seen the episodes of fucking Degrassi, but we're stuck in our shoes. Eventually, she finds the nerve to break up with this loser. Then... A month or so later, he gets into a wreck, totals the car, busts his arm up. And when he returns to school, first thing he does, he finds Rosemary Brown, tells her that he wants her back. For he had realized in that split second before he hit the tree, he realized that the last face he wanted to see before he died was hers. Which, you know, when you think about it, what it means is that he wanted her to be in the car with him, which is, it's fucked up is what it is. To 15-year-olds, this is a romantic gesture. So she took him back and... That's the thing. No, she didn't. She wouldn't. Rosemary Brown had learned her lesson the first time, and now she had more pride than that. You know what happens next? This is killer. The other girls, her friends, so-called, they crucify her. They can't believe she turned him down after that. It's like a, like a cardinal sin in the church of Jane Austen. So now her ex gets to walk around with people treating him like he just returned from Omaha Beach, and Rosemary Brown is this cold bitch harpy who broke his heart. This one act of noble take-me-back nonsense, and everybody has suddenly forgotten how deep down underneath the cast and the puppy dog eyes, deep down, still the same abusive dipshit. Here's your fucking forgiveness. No, it's worse than that. He wasn't just granted forgiveness. No, he was granted redemption. Not just bygones be bygones, but like the buys had never gone in the first place. I'm supposed to sit here with Charles Edwin's apology and his obscene Christmas bonus and let it all happen again. I'm, we are supposed to be Rosemary Brown, what Rosemary Brown should have done instead of what she did. No, I say fuck that. I've seen it happen the one time and that was plenty for my life. To Rosemary Brown. And it's an Irish bar, Hanley's, only it's not a real Irish bar. It's a franchise Irish bar. It's just enough of an Irish bar that when somebody raises a glass and shouts to Rosemary Brown, everyone in the room has to shout back, Rosemary Brown! Like they all know her. Like there have always been melancholy songs about our bonnie wee lass, Miss Rosemary Brown. What happened to her? We went out once, senior year. It was awkward. I think maybe she sent me a LinkedIn request once. In normal people terms, that, all that, is called Getting it out of your system. You know what we're going to do. Except Nick doesn't vent. You know what we're going to do. Nick's that, what is it, the other setting on your car heater? Recycled air. That's the one. We're going to test him. Test? He's a fraud. He said. Who is? Edwin. A fraud. Yes. 
I don't buy it. That... That he's a new man. Just because you start throwing money around doesn't mean you're a new man. You think he's playing a trick on us? I think he's playing a trick on himself. I think that Charles Edwin wants to believe he's a new man. Except he's not. No, so we're going to test him. Yeah. I don't know what that means. Abel, do you know what that means? Nuh-uh. Abel and I don't know what that means. It means redemption is not redemption unless it lingers. I will bet you, I will bet you the contents of this greeting card that you push Charles Edwin hard enough, you'll get the ogre back. Wait, you want? No, of course I don't want the ogre back, Abel, but this, this fakey father Christmas routine, come on. He wants me to believe he's a new man. He has to prove it. So this is when... This is about where I was expecting, where you get all all narrow eyes and folded arms. I want you to understand. I mean this in all seriousness. I had the best of intentions. The road to hell. Let me finish. These people in your life, these people who end up having a say in the direction of your life, it is your job to vet them. Nobody else does it for you. You have to come up with a test of whatever it is that's important to you, and then you administer that test. And if they fail that test, you hold them to the results. Because when you don't, that's how you end up with candidates for high office who can barely fucking read. So tell them already. Tell them what we did. I'm getting to that. You've been getting to it all evening. You drive like an old woman. I've been setting the scene. It's a bar. It's near Christmas. Both times. Get on with it. Yeah, I'm going outside. I need a cigarette. Now? Now. At this part of the story. It's because we're at this part of the story that I need the cigarette. You coming? You need me to? Think I have any? Deadbeat. Abel, watch my wine for me. Oh, uh, sure. I suppose we should just wait until they... Or I suppose I could, that is, if if you want me to, I could, um, or not, and we could just sit here waiting. Why'd you go along with it? That's what they'd ask if people knew, I mean... That I was in on it, this, all this, that's the first thing they'd ask. Abel? You? You were involved? You? But you're such a nice guy. Not, you seemed like such a nice guy, are such a nice guy. I suppose there's a part of me that'd want to get really ticked about that. I'd want to say, oh, yeah? You think I'm such a nice guy? You don't know me. You don't fucking know me. I got this dark side I never told you about. I got Mr. Hyde up in here. I shoplift toothpaste from the CVS. I get into fights with complete strangers, and then I take their girlfriends home, and I do... I do cocaine off of their their chests <laughs> yeah uh, I, I don't believe me either um, <laughs> what I'm trying to say is that I'm not exactly sure why I went along with it could be I'm just 
easy like that. Like that, uh, you know, the uncarved block that floats down the river from um, Zen. I shot my dad once. Wow. Oh, that That's great, Abel. Just come right out and say that. Sorry, uh, let me start over. I can't actually start that over, can I? No, I, you, you could pretend I never... No, no, you can't. I shot my dad. For real. I mean, this isn't like before when I said I was... No, this is for real. It's possible you heard about it. It was all over the news. I was 10. I fired twice. I hit a coffee mug in the drying rack, and I hit him in the left... Uh, his left lung. Everybody got a piece of us. The NRA, the gun control people, everybody. You might have seen it. Back then, it might have been unusual enough to be national. What I remember... What everyone said to me was that it wasn't my fault. They knew I didn't mean it. It was an accident. I let them say that to me. It made them feel better. People kept asking, what kind of moron leaves a loaded gun where a child could get a hold of it? That, that, that wasn't right at all. My dad kept it in an old briefcase, one of those ones with a combination lock. I caught him cleaning it. The gun, I mean, not the briefcase. He said to me that he figured I was old enough to know he kept one in the house. Just for self-defense. Just in case. He didn't let me hold it. Didn't tell me we'd go to a firing range so I could learn how to use it. He let me watch him clean it. Then he put it away. But I saw the combination. I don't remember why I was so mad. He must have told me I couldn't do something, or I couldn't have something. So I went upstairs, I opened the briefcase, I loaded the bullets, I went downstairs to the kitchen, and I shot my dad. No accident. When I pulled the trigger, I was 100% certain I wanted that gun to fire. That might be the last thing in my life I've ever been 100% certain about. We still get on okay, my dad and I. He'll never question any of my decisions. Everything I do is totally fine with him. It's really, really horrible to live like that. Oh, so I looked it up just now. The uncarved block thing, that's Taoism. The river, that part Zen. Sorry about that. I'll be honest with you. I know why I did it. I mean, I know who I was doing it for. Which is why this was a terrible idea from Jump, Nick. Hi, we're back. Miss us? You're being melodramatic, Pauline. Who tied me to the tracks, whiplash? Nobody tied you to the tracks. You bought a ticket and you got on the train. Shut up. You helped shovel coal. Oh, is that the kind of train it... Be quiet. I am not talking to you. Did the wine give you any trouble, Abel? No, it just uh, sat there. My hero. Mercy. Mercy. Fine. 
then I'll just continue my... Okay. What was I about to say? Let me say this first. I interviewed this one place a couple of years back where they had you do something they called the pencil test. The pencil test, they give you this hypothetical scenario. Your boss is looking for a specific brand of pencil. I don't know what they called it, some name. Let's say it's a Smith. Your boss wants you to find him a Smith brand pencil. You say, I'll check for it online. They'll tell you it's not available online. You say you'll call Staples, Office Max, Office Depot. They don't have it, they've never heard of it. It's not a test to see if you can get your boss a pencil. It's a test to see how you handle an impossible situation. It's a Kobayashi Maru. It's a what? That's from Star Trek. How am I supposed to know that? A hundred million people know that, Nick, in a dozen different languages. They print it on baby onesies. They do? I don't know, probably. Fine. Uh, Kaba... Kobayashi Maru. Kobayashi Maru. It's a question that's not about the question. When they ask you if you're organized and dependable, they're checking to see if you're stupid enough not to know the only answer to that question. It's science. What do you call it? The default? The control. The control. First week of the new year, he asks me to draft an all-office memo about some changes in a pair of our accounts. I do so with my usual standards of quality and efficiency, an immaculate memo sent out in a timely fashion. As he passes by my desk on his way to a lunch meeting, he says, Thanks, Nick. Uh-huh. Uh-huh what? Charles Edwin, the Charles Edwin I knew, would not thank you for a job well done. The highest level of courtesy Charles Edwin might entertain would be to say, good. Charles Edwin would tell you that doing your job well is why you draw a salary, not something extraordinary that merits gratitude. So the thanks, Nick, that's new. And even if you'd never met the guy before, you'd know that it was new because you could hear how hard it was for him to say it. You could hear it getting stuck in his throat. You could hear it. Quit forcing your second-person pronouns on the rest of us. If you'd been paying attention... Well, I hadn't been! At that point, I didn't realize that all your talk about testing Charles Edwin had been anything more than an evening's worth of Bob Mitchum's. Nick didn't tell us until February. He sat down next to Abel and me in the break room and... Wait, wait, are, are, we, are we about to... Right, uh... yes, sorry, fasten your seatbelt. He sat down next to Abel and me in the break room and he told us how he'd just spent the month previous doing his job perfectly. Good for you, I tell him. Do you need me to engrave the metal myself, or should I hire a professional? I tell them why I've been doing my job perfectly. Which is when I understand what he's talking about. What is it you're about to do, Nick? I've already done it. What is it you've already done, Nick? I willfully and egregiously misspelled the name of one of our board members on an official document. Oh. Okay, well, that's... How egregiously? There were consonants in it had no reason to be there. Did it look like a typo or incompetence? Meaning what? Whose name? Was it a John Johnson or was it like a Vaclav Vladimir Czech Republic? The latter. So it's an understandable error. Arguably. Did he? Understand? Yes. I walked into his office after the mail went out and I said to him, Mr. Edwin, I apologize. I just now noticed an error I made on that letter that just went out. I'm very, very sorry. I cringed just slightly to accept what's coming. He replied, No biggie. What? Just don't let it happen again. Biggie? And make sure you apologize to her. Where does, where would he ever pick up a word like biggie? From us, from what he thinks normal people like us would say. Thank you and no biggie. It's a foreign language to him. He doesn't speak it as well as you or me. I don't say biggie. I wouldn't say biggie if you waterboarded me. But listen, this is the important thing about the whole experiment. What it tells me, I was right about him. You hear that? You hear what he just now said? Remember that because it's going to pop up later. I wasn't wrong about him. See, and that's different, isn't it? Where we are then, right here? This is the moment I'll replay over and over in my head. This one coming up. I have a plan. The 
four-word sentence of the apocalypse. Don't get cute. This? This just happens. I don't even try. I have a plan. Nick said. And it is not something I said lightly, okay? Because I don't believe it is something you should ever say lightly. People will say all the time that they have a plan when what they really mean is that they want to be in charge. And then a few years down the road, you're watching these people as they shrug their shoulders on national television and collect $10 million in severance money, which they will then use to hire the ghostwriter for their best-selling memoir, Whoopsie Daisy, the story of what everybody else did wrong. When I walked into that break room last February, I had vision and I had reason, or else I never would have said that I had a plan. Yeah, huh? How again did you ask us to help you, Mr. Vision and Reason? What do you mean? I mean the exact words you used. Mercy, Abel, could you help me out with something? What? I don't remember the exact words. Yes, scurvy dogs. I need your help, yes, scurvy dogs. Uh, yeah, I guess it came out that way. Please. As if you hadn't planned out how you'd ask us either. I need your help, yes, scurvy dogs. You know that'll get me every time. Being called a scurvy dog will get you every time. Being needed, Abel. And thus began, gentle listeners, the playing of many pranks on Charles Edwin. They weren't pranks. I asked you not to call them that. <laughs> some of them were pranks. Okay, yes, some of them were pranks. The golf outing invitation with the wrong date on it? Sure. The desk drawer handles that came off in his hand? When you had Abel slow down our network for an afternoon? When you had me call his wife at home and ask if I could speak to Charlie, then hang up? When the SEC received that tip suggesting that Edwin Financial was in need of an audit... Which you assured me we would pass, and we did. It got unwieldy. I ended up creating a private Facebook group and a Google Doc just to manage the discussion. It was a whole thing. Like, for example... Hold on, let me pull it up. You don't have to... Here, see? Color-coded and with organized comment threads and... Whoa, June 18th. You remember June 18th? By name or by reputation? Uh, what we had planned for... Oh, Oh, or Labor Day. Able, yes, that's fine, but... You... It, did Labor Day have the stupid code name? All of them had stupid code names. True. So, like I was saying, I kept these documents because we kept meeting up at the bar after work and having drinks and coming up with all these ideas, and we'd schedule them into the calendar, but then we came up with different ideas. So some of the ones we scheduled, we never... Like, Mercy, look at this one. April 3rd. I can't believe we didn't do April 3rd. Listen, can we just... Oh, and oh, August 8th. Oh, no, I'm really glad we didn't do that. Stop. Let's stop. Let's maybe not turn this into another empty corporate exercise about getting bogged down in every last fucking detail. Big picture, hmm? Pranks, yes, there were pranks, but this was a more delicate business than the pranks. This was an art. What we carried out was a protracted campaign of harassment designed to resemble misfortune. Oh, you're right. That's much better than pranks. Pranks are about entertaining yourself at somebody else's expense. I was trying, we were trying to make Charles Edwin understand something about himself. Is that right? Everything we threw at that man was for his own spiritual awareness? Is that what you're saying? Just experiments to see how he'd react. And how did he react? He didn't. He kept calm the whole time. Every manufactured crisis, he just went about solving it, barely even raised his voice. No, that's not even accurate. Remember that, what was that thing you did with his name? Game to the SEO. There's a thing you do with the metadata where so you... So one night, Abel comes to us all excited because he's found, get this, a serial killer in a Utah prison who is also named Charles Edwin. Miller. Charles Edwin Miller. Abel, he does some sort of what he was saying about the... The, the metadata. I wasn't excited. And two days later, this twisted psycho is the top search hit when you type in our boss's name. And when you informed Mr. Edwin? He laughed. He laughed for 46 seconds straight. What, you timed him? Of course I timed him. I timed it every time I heard him laugh. Abel, show Mercy the chart. There's a chart? 
Uh, that's with bars. And uh, that's as a pie. Never mind. The end of October. October 31st, Halloween. He walked into the office wearing an orange jumpsuit. You see what I'm saying? It wasn't just Christmas anymore. He was getting worse. He wasn't just accepting bad circumstance. He was embracing it. He was laughing at it. You know what that said to me? That he'd well and truly changed, perhaps? That he was overcompensating. Ten months of even temper and positive outlook? We'd tried almost everything. You'd be surprised how far you can stretch a year-end bonus check to do this sort of work. I never even caught a glint of fury in his eyes. It didn't make a damn bit of sense. Then why didn't we stop? Stop? Stop! Why didn't we stop? You're right, we tried almost everything. The one thing we didn't try was not doing this. Science, this, this wasn't science, Nick. Actual science, you don't keep running tests when the results you're getting aren't necessarily the results you want just because those things you have changing color you really want to explode. Nobody is saying what this is. It's a revenge story. That's all. The story of Nick's fucking revenge. It's not revenge, it is science. I need your help, you scurvy dogs. If it's science, Nick, you don't talk about it in pirate. But a revenge story? It's not It's a, a revenge story. It's your revenge story. And Abel and me, we were always just supporting cast. We might not even be here. Did you think about that? We might not have been here at all. You've been telling this story, and we've been imaginary constructs sitting here next to you. Wouldn't that be a twist? Parts of your psyche, based on actual persons, but not physically here. You've been drinking too much and muttering to yourself. You've been doing that for an entire year. How about that, Nick? I don't think I'm imaginary. Of course you're not fucking imaginary. Real imaginary friends would come up with better things to do than go to the same bar three nights a week and devise awful things to inflict on an old man. I had a plan, too, you know? Before yours, I was leaving. I was going to go live someplace that wasn't spitefully cold in April. Someplace where winter has enough decency to lay down and die after it's had its fair share. I was going to move to Los Angeles. I was going to go to Los Angeles and write a screenplay. I was going to go to Los Angeles and write a pilot for a series about a world where human beings developed the same blessed instinct to hibernate as every other intelligent mammal. It's a world where half the planet falls asleep at a time and leaves the other hemisphere in charge. There's a very solemn ceremony where the ambassador from one side stays up late and meets with the ambassador from the other side who wakes up early. They deliver a report on the state of the world and then they hand over the keys and tell them not to dent the finish. Then everybody else wakes up hungry and horny. There would be an entire episode of that. There would be a two-part event. Half the population wakes up, has these glorious Rick Bayless dinners and then screw for hours on end. Then there would be a rash of murders among the hibernating, and the detectives, the two main characters, have to investigate, and guess what? The investigation leads them to the highest levels of their hemisphere's government, because somebody had the epiphany that the state of this world they lived in was just another opportunity to be total bastards to each other. Because we're such petty, vicious creatures as a species that we can even fuck up something as simple and primitive as hibernation. That's what my series would be about. That's what I was going to do before I decided I'd stick around here and play accomplice to another of your bullshit head games. A cop show political thriller about food, sex, and sleeping for months? People would skip funerals to binge it. I'm out of wine. I'll get you. No, thank you. Last week, 
finish this, will you? Last week? He calls me into his office. Abel, this is going to be... Yeah, I get it now. He calls me... He uh, calls all three of us. Into his office. Nick. Mercy. Abel. May I speak with the three of you? Come in. Close the door. We start. I didn't say you could sit down. Been a bit of a year, hasn't it? A lot going on. This and that and the other thing. I had a revelation the other evening. May I share it with you? I was flipping past one of those shows about crime analysts, and I realized... Most of what one considers misfortune can be taken apart and examined closely. And when you examine a year's worth of such misfortune that closely, it occurs to you, nobody is that unlucky without somebody else's help. You three, it's hard for me to say, I can admit I admire the sheer tenacity. There's a section in the art of war, but never mind. Never mind. I would ask you what I ever did to you, but we both know what I did to you. I do know that. I was given an opportunity, you see. I was given several hours under general anesthetic and then several days in a clean, bright room to ask myself questions I had been running from for most of my life. And when at last they caught up with me, I found I didn't like the answers. So I apologized. No, let me... I should say that I tried to apologize. Or that I started to apologize. But because I have been blessed with enough insight to understand that this is a process. And that apologizing the first time doesn't mean I won't be called upon to apologize again and again and that how I choose to respond to being asked again determines whether or not I've made any real progress. If you asked me for another one, I would have given it to you. But you didn't do that, did you? I could ask you what it was that you found so lacking that it inspired such a concerted effort, but I don't know that I have anything to learn from that line of questioning. Perhaps you thought me foolish, a foolish old leopard imagining he could change his spots. Or perhaps it had nothing to do with me. It didn't matter if I was stupid, as long as you proved to yourselves that you were smart. I don't need to know why you did it any more than you would care to know what made me into the man I once was. There's only one useful question here. What did you hope to accomplish? I don't need you to answer this for me. It's something that I'm giving to you, this question, because it was the last question I'd needed to ask myself a year ago on my back before I understood myself better. What had all my offenses, all my malice, to what end had it, what had I ever learned from being so ruthless. I should let you know, I had the slightest yearning for this meaning to be very ugly. Something that the entire office would hear. 
me making an example of the three of you. You know why I'm not doing that? I'll tell you. I'm not doing that because I don't like knowing that I want to do it. And I'm not doing that because there's nobody outside of these doors who needs to hear it. It's just you three. Everybody else gave me the space and the trust to try to be better. Everybody else forgave. So perhaps instead I prove myself to you once and for all. I forgive the three of you for this past year the same way I'd ask you to forgive me for the years before that. I could offer you that. Will you? No. He says. You don't know the first thing about forgiveness. You're fired. Get out of my office. We're almost to the door when there's a sound behind us. Sort of a thump. More like whoop. No, it's definitely thump. Can we please not argue about the sound effect, please? Thump. Yeah. Agreed. I wish I could tell you that this was our finest moment. How Nick darted across the room, laid him on the ground, checked the breathing, checked the pulse, began chest compressions. How we called for an ambulance and the EMTs burst through the door, pushed us aside, charged the paddles and zapped him back from oblivion. How Charles Edwin opened his eyes and saw what we'd done and he smiled weakly and nodded his head and we nodded back at him and that was that. I did, uh, I tried to, I couldn't make his phone work. Like, I forgot you didn't have to dial 9 from his office, and then I started dialing the area code, and then I kept pressing line 3, which has been shut off for a few months, and... Do you not have that phone glued to your hand, genius? Oh, God. Oh, my God. Leave him alone. What did you do? What did either you or I do but stand there like big, dumb oak trees? It was too late to do anything. You were there. You heard them say that. He was dead on the way down. Decent people try, Nick. Here's the funny part. Oh, good. There's a funny part. In all the chaos that afternoon, nobody from HR, nobody from security, nobody at all, nobody reminds the three of us to clean out our desks and scram, which means... He never got a chance to tell them. Which was surprising. I still can't figure out why he played it that way. But the important thing was that we all showed up the next day and nobody acted like it was out of the ordinary. So we're clear? We hang tight, we keep quiet, then yes, we're clear. We get away with it. Get away with what? We didn't kill him. You heard him say it himself. He was practically living two separate personalities. How long can anybody keep that up? That's what killed him. That's that's what it was. You're going to stick with that? Let's be fair here. Fair? What's fair? He still wins, Mercy. Do you realize that? Is that fair? I was right about him, and he got to go to his grave with everybody believing he was really a changed man. Do you know what today was? Do you? It was the Charles Edwin Memorial Holiday Party. Can you even believe that? Everybody was saying that it wouldn't feel right to have the party at all in light of the circumstances, but then Bill, this is Bill Weller, the CFO, Bill sends out this memo saying that Edwin Financial will have a holiday party this year because that's what Charles would have wanted. And why would Charles Edwin have wanted it? Because Because Charles Charles Edwin Edwin loved Christmas. Christmas. People, I swear, got memories like fucking goldfish. And we have to go, of course, 
If we didn't go, people would have thought we didn't love Charles Edwin as much as he loved Christmas. We had to sit here and listen to Bill go on about keeping the company strong and espousing the principles of our dearly departed founder and blah, blah, blah. A toast to Charles Edwin. Here, here. Back to business as usual. We'll see. What do you mean? Bill's been telling Mr. Edwin all year that the staff needed to be downsized now that Mr. Edwin's gone. Are you serious? How do, how do you hear this? People forget I'm there half the time. So I listen. Huh. I just figured it out. Figured what out? You know why Mr. Edwin didn't tell anybody that he was going to fire us? Because he was waiting to see if we'd apologize. That's crazy. No way after everything we did that he'd have accepted an apology. No. That's you, Nick. That wasn't him. He was giving us the same thing he asked for last year. The only thing I don't know is how he found us out in the first place. I told him. I'm sorry, what? You told him? I sent him evidence. The thing we did mid-August with the... Doesn't matter. I sent him clear evidence about the three of us. I had to. The last thing I needed to see was how he'd react to betrayal. You saw? Any guesses how I'm going to react to it? Mercy, I know you're upset, but listen... Of course I'm upset! Why wouldn't I be upset? Why wouldn't you know that I'd be upset? Why'd you even tell us you did it? Because I need you to understand. Listen. Remember what he said to us? In that whole speech of his, did he once mention that somebody had tipped him off about the three of us? No. You know why? Because like I've been saying the whole time, he was a fraud. Him not being able to admit that somebody had to tell him that he hadn't figured it out himself? That's just indicative of all the lies he'd been telling you, me, himself. What about the lies you told, Nick? Why are your lies any better? It was the last test I could think of Stop it. Stop it. Stop calling them tests. They're not tests. They're crimes against humanity. You belong in the fucking Hague. It wasn't a genocide, for Christ's sake. I'm not talking about humanity as a population. I'm talking about humanity as in that thing you're supposed to have that keeps you from committing crimes against the population. Crimes against that. I don't understand. Like you ever have. Mercy, listen. Can we focus on the important thing? None of us lost our jobs. Everything worked out. If you need me to say I'm sorry, then fine. I'm sorry. If I need you to say you're sorry... Then I'm sorry. If I need... Why don't you need to say that you're sorry, Nick? Mercy, look, I'm sorry. How many times do I have to say it? I'm sorry. No, you're not. Of course you're not. I finally get that. You're not sorry. You've never been sorry. A day in your life. Mr. Edwin saw that, and that's why he wouldn't forgive us. You can't forgive somebody who doesn't know a damn thing about regret. I'm leaving. Where's my coat? There's my coat. I'm leaving, Nick. Mercy, I truly am. I'm sorry. Yes, you are. Don't follow me. Don't talk to me. I'm done. Understand? I'm done. Good night. Goodbye. Good luck. Good riddance. Merry Christmas. Go to hell. We're fine. She won't spill anything. She can't, right? She'd be in it too, right? We're fine. No, we're not. We're screwed. Why? You see this? You see the phone I have glued to my hand? I just used it to screw us. Oh, oh, no. No, 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 no. And that was the moment Nick realized Abel had just invited the head of HR to view their secret pranking Charles Edwin Facebook group and Google Doc. What? It's the holidays. It's the season for invitations. I didn't have to do that. That's true. I could have lived with the three of us getting away with it. 
I've gotten away with things before. I just didn't know if it was really the three of us or if it was just you. Or even if it was just you and Mercy. I could have been okay with that. You understand, Nick? This was your test. And you... And you failed it. And then Abel grabbed his own coat, put it on, and he walked out the door. And he said to Nick, as he walked away, he... Um... He said... Everything she said. So that's... Um, and they all lived. That's it. They lived. The end... God bless us. Leave me alone. Redeemers was written by Bilal Dardai and directed by Jess Hutchinson, with sound design by Alexander Danner and featuring Patrick King as Nick, Marsha Harmon as Mercy, Bilal Dardai as Abel, and Lindsay Falls as Charles Edwin. Produced by Jeffrey Gardner, with recording engineering by Mel Ruder. Music by Kai Engel, Kevin McLeod, and the United States Air Force Band. See the show notes for complete credits. Presented by Heartlife NFP. Managing Director Eleanor Hyde and Executive Producer Jeffrey Gardner. The Fable and Folly Network, where fiction producers flourish.